imagine if a friend who was not a surgeon announced he was going to treat his infected appendix himself. After all, he doesn't need some expert. He's seen YouTube videos of self-administered appendectomies and he knows what to do. I mean, it's not like it's hard or anything. Well, what would you say to him? There's a new form of science denial in town. It combines a distrust of science and medical expertise with a can-do, do-it-yourself enthusiasm. Drawing from the idea that expertise is overrated, the slogan of this new variety of sticking your thumb in the eye of science is called do your own research. The only reason that your children should ever get this or any inoculation is if you decide to do it. And that's only after you have done plenty of your own research, talk to smart people, and make a decision that makes the most sense for you. Okay, we haven't seen the rise of do-your-own-appendectomy or do-your-own-surgery videos, not yet, but what happens when people take a wiki page as evidence? Is there something fundamental about our quest for truth being eroded along the way? This is Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute. I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. In this, our regular look at critical thinking, what happens when amateurs don white lab coats and claim to be pursuing the truth? One insight into the psychology of this phenomenon comes from a study, an actual study, that shows how quickly people with limited knowledge about a subject overestimate their competence in it if given a chance. Plus, a science historian tests his reasoning skills and considerable patience at a meeting of flat earthers. This episode is Skeptic Check, Do Your Own Research. Sometimes having tenure, multiple degrees, and a stack of reprints doesn't insulate you from the doubt of those who will still question your science expertise. Well, hi, I'm Yvette Johnson-Walker. I'm a veterinarian and an epidemiologist. I study the transmission of infectious disease between humans and other animals. And I also train public health professionals and those working in zoos and with livestock on zoonotic disease outbreak response. Have you ever been approached by a non-expert who has questioned your expertise? As a veterinarian, we hear it all the time. If you're working in clinical medicine, clients will challenge your diagnosis or your treatment recommendations based on something they read on the internet. Many times if you're making a treatment recommendation, there's a particular medication you want to use, or in the case of situations where you feel that an infection is viral and that the patient doesn't need an antibiotic, and often the client will push and say that they would like to receive the antibiotic that they know of other people who received an antibiotic for their dog's treatment for the same condition, and really appropriate stewardship of antimicrobials is not to use antibiotics when there's a viral infection. And once someone's convinced that they are right, it can be really difficult to get them to be receptive of contradictory information. And I understand you have a specific story that comes to mind when you think of being memorably challenged about what you know from someone who maybe didn't know as much. Well, from someone who did not know as much. Uh, one of my most memorable experiences was during the 2003-2004 emergence of human cases of H5N1 avian influenza in Asia. At the time, I was teaching epidemiology and food safety here at the University of Illinois, and I was also the poultry species veterinarian for the university research facility. And I was traveling across the state giving seminars on avian influenza with a panel of experts. 
My own mother became convinced that it was not safe to have turkey for Thanksgiving, and nothing I said to her would change her mind. And when I asked her where she got her information, she told me that a lady in line at the bank told her. So your mom thought that the turkey might have been carrying the um, H5N1 virus. Yes, even though there were no cases in North America of this and that, yeah, even if the turkey were infected, having been cooked, it was not going to be a risk for human consumption. Now, Yvette, how do you know that the woman in line that your mom spoke with um, wasn't an epidemiologist? I I guess it's possible that she happened to find someone who was also... uh, an epidemiologist or perhaps a specialist in uh, avian diseases at the bank, but uh, I doubt it. How did you remind your mom, perhaps, of your own credentials and that you could assure her that the turkey was safe to eat? Well, I think this is one of those where um, we beg to differ, but I chose to cook the turkey and she did indeed eat turkey on Thanksgiving. So I think she came around in the end. So the end, uh, the prospect of a delicious dinner maybe helped her overcome her fears. Well, lastly, had you heard of this phenomenon, do your own research? Yes, I have. And and I have to admit, I, I found it fascinating that someone could challenge someone who a panel of experts who spent decades studying a particular issue and coming up with a recommendation and feel that after a weekend of Googling something on the Internet, that that they can provide a counter argument that's just as valid. Yvette Johnson-Walker is an epidemiologist at the University of Illinois College of Veterinary Medicine, which is affiliated with the University of Illinois Chicago School of Public Health. Well, Dr. Johnson-Walker is not the only scientist to have their expertise questioned, although hers might be the rare case that resolved itself over dinner, but scientists are increasingly having their expertise challenged by non-experts who claim to have done their own research. We were drawn to a recent op-ed in the New York Times whose authors described why this is a problem and the effect that the slogan, do your own research, has on the quest for truth. Nathan Ballantyne is a professor of philosophy at Fordham University in New York who studies how to improve judgment. And David Dunning is a social psychologist and professor of psychology at the University of Michigan. The slogan has been broadcast all over the internet at this point in time. It's easy to go find your own example, do your own research. Um, You can go on Twitter and simply search for the word D-Y-O-R. Relatively recently, Uh, Green Bay Packers quarterback Aaron Rodgers has become somewhat notorious for kind of anti-establishment views about the vaccine. And he's actually couched some of his statements in terms of, I'm doing my own research. But, But what do they mean when they say that? I mean, you know, have they set up a lab, gotten a government grant? Do they have grad students? Do they have control groups? What is it that they think their research is? Well, the funny thing about uh, do your own research is that unless you're a scientist set up with a lab uh, or uh, some sort of other professional, you aren't necessarily doing your own research. I mean, if the question is about a vaccine and a virus and epidemiology, uh, it's hard for people in their households to set up their own panels for random controlled trials. They're not doing original research. Uh, What they're really doing 
is curating research, investigating research, um, looking at other people's research. So in an odd way, doing your own research doesn't really involve doing your own research. It's really relying on the research of others and seeing what other people have said. And the question is, do people do an adequate exploration of the information that's out there, and do they evaluate it properly? On one hand, doing your own research sounds like it's commendable. You know, people are taking some responsibility to research various subjects, whether it might be climate change or vaccine efficacy or safety. What's the problem here? Where does it run into a problem? Well, I think it is commendable when somebody's doing their own research and they have the capacities to do that research effectively. The worry is that there are lots of questions for which people simply lack competence. Common observation is that early in 2020, a lot of people became so-called experts about epidemiology who hadn't really thought about that field of inquiry at all before uh, March 2020. And that is a problem um, insofar as we want to get the truth and avoid false beliefs. Just to add something here, because you mentioned that uh, doing your own research is commendable. I would actually go further. I would say that doing your own research as we move ahead in this information-drenched world is going to be a necessity. That is, a friend recommends uh, a cryptocurrency. Uh, we might want to check up on it. Or our doctor asks us about our opinion. Uh, we're going to have to do our own research more in the future. And the only reason why we won't be doing it more in the future is because we have to do it right now. The issue, though, is doing it well. Well, there's a reason why the two of you wrote an op-ed recently about this, that you do consider it a problem. Why do you want us to look at this now, this slogan, do your own research? I think it's become an issue because it's become a meme. It's become an idea uh, that people are willing to express to others and then take on for themselves. Uh, I mean, Nathan and I uh, had the intuition that, gee, people are saying do your own research a lot more than they used to. And Nathan knows me, I'm a little bit of an empiricist, so I immediately went to Google Trends and looked to see if do your own research, DYOR, is actually being searched more on the internet. And the answer is yes, since 2020, it is. Both terms are being looked at more. But it's an interesting question uh, because uh, DYOR is being used in so many different ways. I mean, uh, Nathan can tell you, for example, how it's being used as a rhetorical device. Yeah, so people will often use DYOR to answer a, an apparently legitimate question. Where's your evidence? What's your reason for thinking that? And someone will say DYOR. And initially, it seems like that's a perfectly good response. But this is actually changing the question. Well, that kind of makes it sound as if it's, you know, something you might use in a debate. That, uh, you know, you just turn it back on the other person to say, you know, not saying, well, that doesn't agree with whatever... You say, well, you do your own research, as if I know you're wrong and you should learn that you're wrong. But isn't that just a, a trick? Well, I, I think it often is. I mean, it's, it's hard to generalize across cases, but if the burden of proof uh, rests on someone for showing why a claim they've made is plausible and they disregard the request for evidence by saying DYOR, that's a, that's a disappointment. But it, it often doesn't come across as a, an error in discussion. It actually seems like uh, this person's knowledgeable. I wonder if one of you could give an example of the sort of dangerous places that this can lead people. David, I, I see you nodding. 
I mean, the issue with DYOR is that there's a lot of tremendous information out on the internet and also a lot of crap and outright fraud. And in healthcare, if you're looking up information, uh, websites about obesity often contain lots of misinformation. I mean, the popular ones contain a lot of misinformation. And there are some uh, websites set up to diagnose yourself but you come to the correct diagnosis, or it turns up in like the first 10 diagnoses you get only about half the time. So uh, there is terrific information out there, but there's also a lot of misleading information. The other issue with DYOR is often it's used as a way not to encourage a person to gain information, but to dismiss information, like from experts. What are the epidemiologists saying about uh, vaccines, for example, and the booster shot? What about masks, uh, for example? And one way to encourage a person to dismiss what expert opinion is saying is to say DYOR. Uh, something like, you don't think that orange juice will cure COVID? Well, DYOR. I found a YouTube video where the guy cured his COVID by drinking orange juice. DYOR. Go find the truth yourself. There's always a balance to strike between autonomy and deference to experts. So the big question is when to use your capacities to arrive at an answer independently of the answers other people have come up with, and when to rely on their capacities to do that for you. Can you give an example, please? Sure. If I, if I told someone to DYOR on the best takeout food in the area, we're not running any serious risk that a person is going to be harmed. But if I tell someone a DYOR about effective cancer treatments, and the set of possibilities here includes all sorts of alternative medicine, this might be a big mistake, right? They could forego getting real treatment and instead take up something that's not very reliable at all. There's a lot of medical information out there. There's also a lot of medical misinformation, and there's a lot of well-meaning information about medicine, uh, nutrition, well-being, depression, um, that uh, has mistakes in it or faulty information. So I don't have the exact numbers in my head, but what I can say is that the numbers and the percentages that turn out to be misleading is way high, uh, much higher than uh, what I would imagine. The one statistic I do remember is that when people do some DYOR uh, and then go see their doctor, uh, their doctor disagrees with the diagnosis, diagnosis the patient has come up with at least a third of the time. So people have an idea, uh, and it, we don't know what percentage of people just don't bother to go to the doctor, but we know that there's an error rate of 33% for those who do go to the doctor. Later in the show, stories from a Flat Earth convention. But first, Nathan and David share insights on why people quickly become confident in a subject that they knew nothing about the day before. This is our regular look at critical thinking on big picture science, Skeptic Check. In this episode, the consequences of people eschewing expertise and forging their own science truth. It's Skeptic Check. Do your own research.
there's no doubt that Galileo's claim in the 16th century that the Earth and other planets revolved around the Sun changed our view of our place in the universe. But they also influenced Galileo himself. He was prosecuted by the church for his belief in heliocentrism, and he was put under house arrest. Yet he persisted in his conviction. Sometimes outlier ideas, the ones that go against the accepted norms, can be correct. But I sense that a but is coming, um, that maybe not everybody is Galileo. Exactly. Not every person with an outlier theory is a Galileo, but they might feel that they are, and they still might feel that they have an important insight that the authorities have missed. Now, this may give us some clue to the psychology driving those who operate under the banner of do your own research. We look at other psychological drivers and cultural factors behind the DYOR phenomenon as we continue our conversation with philosopher Nathan Ballantyne and social psychologist David Dunning, beginning with a history of the origins of the term do your own research. It really emerges in the 1990s in American conspiracy theory circles. There was a conspiracy theorist from uh, Arizona named Bill Cooper. Bill Cooper had a kind of paranoid uh, worldview. He thought that there was a sort of uh, scheme by international elites, the Illuminati, uh, the Freemasons, to allow extraterrestrials to enslave human beings. And he thought that John F. Kennedy, for example, was assassinated because Kennedy was about to to blow the whistle on this whole plan and reveal to Americans what was happening. So this guy, Bill Cooper, had himself engaged in a kind of do-your-own research. He claimed to have found documents uh, revealing this conspiracy, and he had a radio show, and he wrote a book. And this was wildly popular among certain communities. Uh, Timothy McVeigh, the Oklahoma City uh, Bomber was actually a fan of Cooper's book, but so were some famous uh, American rap and hip-hop uh, groups. They also thought that Cooper was really fascinating. Why is that? Well, from a certain perspective, you can understand how people on the margins will not have a lot of trust in the government. And Bill Cooper really channeled this kind of distrust um, early on. And he said, you know, don't take it from me. Go and do your own research. Try to show what I think is mistaken or, or show that it's correct. But do it yourself. Don't trust anyone to tell you what to believe. You know, I grew up in an era where scientists were experts. And being an, you know, an expert, a university professor, whatever, you were a member of the elite, and that was a compliment. Today, it's decidedly not a compliment. But, you know, in the television advertisements for cigarettes way back when, they usually featured somebody in a white lab coat with a <laughs> stethoscope around their neck because they were clearly an expert. And if he said that Chesterfields would make you breathe easier, you believed him because he was an expert. He was a scientist. That's all gone. By the way, so much so that they actually banned people wearing white coats in commercials for <laughs> quite a while. Well, I, it's a good thing I sold mine. So, so, so when did this more or less take place, David? I mean, when did we decide that the, you know, academia that was populated by people who were actually not qualified to answer any questions? 
Well, uh, one thing I often think about is that often these sorts of attitudes may have always been there. They're just now exposed, if you will. There may have been a distrust of the eggheads for a long time, but with the with the internet and uh, maybe a little elite messaging going on, uh, it's now more exposed. So there could be uh, that going on. Uh, but we also live in an era where there are many institutions that are just not as trusted as much as they were uh, way back when in the good old days. Let's call it the Sputnik era. Uh, the other thing that's coming into play is that people don't know what scientists do. And uh, they don't know how hard scientists have to work to eke out uh, a scientific conclusion. They don't know the constraints that, uh, that scientists live under before we can make even a half-confident pronouncement of what might be going on in the little corner of the world that we're studying. And that's connected to distrust in science. I mean, if you don't know how much work has gone in, if you don't know how much checking has gone in through peer review, I mean, scientists have to review the, the work of other scientists, and no one is going to describe that process as anything but withering, you do feel permission to distrust the scientists, because after all, what are they doing except sitting in their offices uh, thinking grandiose or, or faulty thoughts? You know, people who just think, oh, well, I can figure this out. There, there's a, a sort of hubris that's quite surprising uh, from the inside, right? When you've actually seen the kind of work that Dave mentioned that goes into publishing results, but many people don't understand that and they think that they can supplant uh, expert knowledge. You mentioned hubris and this idea that people become overconfident. And in fact, we have someone here on this panel who has done a study on this. Um, David is one of the researchers, along with Justin Kruger, who discovered the psychological effect about overconfidence. I wonder if you could give us just an example of the Dunning-Kruger effect and how it leads to this um, mismatch between our actual abilities and what we think our abilities are. Oh, sure. Well, let me humbly uh, mention we didn't discover this. We just uh, verified it with numbers, uh, if you will, and then somehow got our names attached to it, which we had nothing to do with. But what the effect is, is simply that if you're not an expert, you don't know the depth of your expertise. And that follows logically from the fact that if you don't have expertise, you don't know how much expertise you're lacking. And that can lead to people really overestimating themselves or being wildly, um, inappropriately confident. So, for example, not from our lab, but from a recent survey about vaccines and autism, this is pre-pandemic, there was a nationally representative survey that was asked how, uh, where people were asked how much they knew, and a full third of people said uh, when it came to the causes of autism, they knew just as much as the scientists and also just as much as doctors. And that can't be the case. Um, uh, if you've been a trained doctor uh, or a scientist who's in the area. Uh, and partially what was supporting, well, no, excuse me, what was really supporting that was the fact that the people who felt they knew just as much as doctors knew stuff, but the stuff they knew was misleading, it was wrong. Uh, they had answers if you asked them questions. It just turned out to be the wrong answers. Uh, it was misinformation. So you can be in a position where you're very confident, but uh, what you really know does, is far from matching the confidence that you're expressing about your expertise in an area. In this op-ed, you cited a few studies that show how people can come to have this 
you know, mismatch between the confidence in their abilities and what they can actually do. And I wonder if you could just talk about the, the tests that you did where David and Carmen Sanchez, I believe, was the other researcher on this, um, tested the confidence of people who were enlisted to become pretend doctors and how quickly they became really confident with their ability to diagnose illnesses. The issue with inappropriate confidence is that it really rises when we're trying out something new. Um, and by the way, COVID-19 was exactly something new. It's not a surprise. There was a lot of misinformation and misbelief going on uh, early in the pandemic. It was a new situation. That's what we're talking about. We didn't know, but we thought we could know really, really quickly because it's only like the flu, right? Well, in the studies that we did, uh, we introduced people to a completely new task they had never seen before. Uh, and that was they were in a post-apocalyptic world in which they had to diagnose people uh, to see if they were healthy or suffering from either one of two different zombie diseases. They had to, by trial and error, figure out what were the symptoms that indicated whether a person was healthy or sick. But they had to figure out for their own what was going on in this completely new task. Can you give us just an example of what some of those symptoms were? Excessive sweating, abscess, brain enlargement. And some of those symptoms did indicate disease, and some of those symptoms were just red herrings. They didn't indicate anything. And subjects had to figure out, okay, what are the um, symptoms that really matter, that diagnose whether a person's healthy or, or sick. And what we discovered is people started out as appropriately cautious and unconfident. And then after maybe 10, 15, maybe 20 diagnoses, they were blown up in terms of their confidence. They, were, they really thought they had this down. They really had it. And then after a few more cases, they began to realize, maybe I don't have it. Their confidence leveled off or maybe dipped a little bit before it started rising again. But essentially, for beginners, they thought they had the story. They thought it had it down far earlier than they really had it down. So let's bring this to the takeaway message for the do-your-own-research phenomenon. Is this happening to people? Are they getting this hit where they feel like they're getting something right? And is their confidence kind of shooting up disproportionate to their actual abilities? Well, I, I think that that's a, a plausible way to understand some people who are involved in doing their own research. They might have outsider views about a topic. They go on YouTube. They look for videos that essentially confirm their kind of uh, outsider thinking. And it feels good, right? There, there's a sort of secret they feel they're in on now. Gentlemen, maybe uh, I could say the obvious, which is my usual modus operandi, and that is that technology has given us a very powerful microphone magnifier <laughs> to put all sorts of opinions, information out there. And, you know, that sounds really great in principle, but it was the same sort of thought that when, you know, computers were used for word processing, suddenly the entire world could write great novels. Well, it turns out that it didn't depend so much on the technology, it depended on the people. Are we ever going to get out of this do-your-own-research? That sounds like something my thesis advisor might say to me. Well, I, uh, I don't know about the future, uh, but I do know about the past. And the issue is that we've been around this before, this issue before. That is, every time there's a new form of communication, there is some sort of disruption that occurs. Uh, when did spam start? Spam started with the telegraph and the Morse code, for example. When the telephone was introduced... 
there was a lot of social disruption because, uh, for example, people might listen in on you on the party line, for example. Television brought its own worries and headaches, and maybe we're in a hyperspeed uh, set of innovations going on here wrapped around the internet, but this is a situation we've been in before. We've survived the examples from before. Uh, I can't predict the future, but uh, one can hope that past is prologue to the situation we're in and the situation we're headed toward. I think we'll leave it there. Well, Nathan Ballantyne, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much, Molly and Seth. And David Dunning, thank you for discussing the phenomenon of do your own research. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. David Dunning is a social psychologist and professor of psychology at the University of Michigan. And Nathan Ballantyne is a philosophy professor at Fordham University in New York. Well, not all questioning of science comes from non-scientists. Your own colleagues might suggest you brush up on the research. A scientist presents a twist on the do-your-own-research theme. I'm Jessica McCarty, and I'm an associate professor of geography at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. I'm a geographer, but really I'm an expert in satellite data analysis for fire and agriculture and food security. In my late 20s, I already had my PhD by then, and I was presenting some work at a a NASA conference. And this was for all people who had been funded by NASA to do earth science. And I was funded researcher. So I was in a, a small group sitting with one of the program managers and I was asked to explain a new research project that I had started in Russia and in Europe around how to look at the causes of fire where humans are the dominant, you know, the dominant force. And as I'm talking about the fire patterns and who starts the fires and fire weather and potentially causes, I'm I'm interrupted by a young man uh, who's probably two or three years older than me telling me that I was probably off my mark and I I didn't understand what was actually driving fire in these human-dominated landscapes. And what I should really do is read this paper about fires in the southeastern U.S., which is where I'm originally from, that is written by McCarty et al. And I remember taking a very loud, deep breath but I have extremely long, thick hair, and it was covering my name tag. So he couldn't know my name. And so I immediately move my hair dramatically, and I say, I'm McCarty et al. And what's funny is that he was sitting next to the program manager. And the program manager is also a man, and he was just glaring at this dude, (laughs) just incensed that he had interrupted me to tell me to read my own damn paper, right? And after the program manager said, please continue, this young man was like, oh, okay, so you know then. So you know. That guy on the street corner with a tinfoil hat, he doesn't need to hand out photocopied sheets anymore to spread his offbeat ideas. He has the internet. Our question is, what tools do you have to counter him? My name is Lee McIntyre, and I'm a research fellow at the Center for Philosophy and History of Science at Boston University. And I'm the author of How to Talk to a Science Denier. Next, a science historian takes his reasoning skills and admirable patience to a flat earth convention. 
It's our regular look at critical thinking on Big Picture Science, Skeptic Check. This episode is Do Your Own Research. Okay, I have a question for you. Is the Earth round? Well, I'm not going to answer that head-scratcher, but here's a hint. If the Earth were flat, what would happen to the signal from your favorite FM radio station? You could pick it up at any distance from the transmitter, but we can't do that. If the Earth were flat, that signal would just, you know, be 100 feet off the ground forever, right? It would just keep going and going and going at that altitude. Whereas if the Earth is round, it'll shoot off the edge of the spherical Earth. (laughs) Here's another way you could tell that the Earth is round, is you could pay for a ride into space, and then you could look down at the planet and see its shape. But you could save money with this test, Molly. Just get yourself down to the beach and watch ships disappear over the horizon. The Earth is round. That's something the Greeks figured out 2,500 years ago. But imagine, despite having such simple proofs about the shape of the Earth, that the person you're talking to persists in the belief that the Earth is flat. Well, you might tear your hair out in frustration. Science historian and philosopher Lee McIntyre was willing to risk parting with a few strands. I went to the Flat Earth Convention in Denver, Colorado in November 2018. I wanted to challenge myself by trying to talk to the worst science deniers that I could think of. Flat earthers are the kind of science deniers that even other science deniers make fun of. And I wanted to see if I could talk to the flat earthers and not necessarily convince them to give up their beliefs, but get them to listen. As a research fellow at the Center for Philosophy and History at Boston University, Lee McIntyre has traced the weaponization of science denial back to big tobacco whose playbook for scoffing at studies that linked smoking and cancer was also used by big oil to deny climate change. But not every science denier has a financial interest in ignoring the evidence. Dr. McIntyre thinks that many people who distrust science can be reasoned with. How to Talk to a Science Denier is his book, attempting to bridge a gap that looks increasingly like a yawning chasm. But off he went to the 2018 Denver Flat Earth Convention. The Flat Earth Convention visually did not look like I expected it to look. It was in a ballroom at a hotel. There were a bunch of people standing around wearing black t-shirts with funny uh, slogans on them about NASA and such. People were laughing, they were happy, and it looked like they were gonna have some sort of a multimedia program up on the stage. In reality, you are actually in a giant planetarium slash terrarium slash soundstage slash Hollywood backlot that is so big that you and everyone you know and everyone you've ever known never figured it out. They believe that the Earth is flat, that Antarctica is not a continent but a mountain range spread out around the perimeter of the Earth so that the water doesn't fall off that there is a dome over the top of the Earth, which prevents us from undergoing any sort of space travel, and that the sun, moon, and stars are just outside that dome. Okay, so how do they regard globes, uh, photos of the Earth from space, and the space program itself? How do they explain those? Um, 
they take globes as indoctrination. They think that it's all part of a giant conspiracy theory. And the reason that you find globes in every schoolroom is because all the teachers are in on the conspiracy. They think that NASA is a sham, that we never went to the moon, and that every single picture out of NASA has been faked. You knew going into this convention that presenting the evidence itself wouldn't work. And why is that, Lee? Why are we beyond the point, when we talk to any science denier, of just presenting the evidence to them? Jonathan Swift said it best, you can't reason somebody out of something they didn't reason themselves into in the first place. Science denial is not based on evidence. No matter what they say, it's not based on evidence. How could it be? So you go in understanding that facts are not going to convince them. They knew the facts. They knew physics. They had said, you couldn't bring up an example from Galileo or Newton or Aristarchus that they hadn't heard of. They had read it all. So a better model to think of science denial in general and flat earth in particular is that their beliefs are identity based. They believe what they believe as, it's not just what they believe, it's who they are. They consider themselves to be scientists. They consider themselves to be uh, better scientists than the scientists, more skeptical than the scientists. Okay, so you were up for a considerable challenge walking into that convention room and getting ready to talk to some of these flat earthers. As someone who believes in the round earth, are you a roundist? What would you call yourself, a globalist, globist? They, uh, spherical admirer, spherical. Spherical admirer, I like that. <laughs> they used the word globalist, and so they called me a globalist. You had many conversations, and one of the most memorable was with a man named Rob Skiba. And I wonder if you could set up who he was and share with us how you talked to him so we can get at some of the techniques that, that worked and to the extent that they did work. So tell us about Rob Skiba. I couldn't wait to meet him because I saw on the program that he was their main scientist. Uh, he was the person that the other flat earthers were saying, oh, I can't wait for Rob's presentation. You know, he's going to give us the scientific data. And the first thing he did when he went up on stage is he held up a white lab coat and he said, I have no scientific degree or credentials, but I do have this. And he held up the white lab coat and said, and this is all I need. And then he started in. And, you know, finally, when I, when I was forced to reckon with the lies of science, and I would say scientism, science falsely so-called, it's all across the board. They're lying to us about everything. And I listened, uh, and he went on and on and on about the different quote-unquote facts uh, in favor of flat Earth and against the global Earth. You know, I said at the beginning of this, if you haven't done any investigation, you have no right to condemn Condemnation before investigation is the height of ignorance. So if you're going to condemn me and you haven't done any investigation, I'm just going to be amazed at how high you've scaled the mountain of ignorance while you're throwing rocks at me. And I heard enough that there were many different things that I wanted to engage him about. And I grabbed him the minute he came off stage. And I wanted to ask him a question about something that he'd said because he had presented a photograph which showed that Lake Michigan, if you go out on Lake Michigan, uh, the city of Chicago should not be visible after 45 miles out, but he showed a photo in which it was visible from 45 miles out. Now, the scientific explanation for this is something called the superior mirage effect, 
which says that if the water temperature is very low and the air temperature above it is not quite uh, so low, uh, the light beams will be bent and you'll see a superior image, a floating image of the city of Chicago up over the horizon. And it's a really cool effect and it's a real effect. Now, the reason this is interesting is because if you could see the city of Chicago from 45 miles out, uh, that would tend to bolster the argument that the Earth is flat, because at 45 miles out, the curvature of the Earth should take the top of the Sears Tower down uh, below the surface of the horizon. But of course, with the superior mirage effect, the light rays are bent. So even though the city of Chicago is over the horizon, it's projected image up in the air and you can see it. But what you're seeing is a phantom image, not the actual image of the city of Chicago. What happened when you pointed out that this was the superior mirage effect? So I challenged him uh, went off stage, and, and, and we had quite a little crowd listening to us. And I said, you know, you said that, um, uh, you know, do you understand that this is due to the superior mirage effect? And he said, well, I talked about that in my talk. And I said, no, you didn't. You just said you didn't believe in it. And he said, well, I don't. I thought, okay, now, what, what, you know, how, how are we going to do this? And so then I thought of something. I said... You said that you were out on Lake Michigan and you saw this. Yes. I said, why did you only go out 46 miles? Why didn't you go out 100 miles? And he said, why should I go out 100 miles? And I said, because think about it for a minute. Because if he went out 100 miles and the city of Chicago was still there, then he was right. But if he went out 100 miles and it wasn't there, then I was right. So he had the definitive experiment for whether the superior mirage effect was a real thing or not, and he refused to do it. We get a sense from your description here that the conversation with Rob Eskiba or any of the flat earthers could go on and on and on. What technique were you employing here? It sounds like you were challenging him on the facts, and you said that bringing evidence into an argument is not what's going to persuade someone. So what technique were you using here? I was using something called technique rebuttal, which is when you're talking to someone about not what they believe, but why they believe it. And it's based on the idea that earlier work uh, where cognitive scientists and others had found that all science deniers use the exact same pattern of reasoning, whether they're flat earthers or anti-vaxxers or evolution deniers or climate deniers, it's all the same flawed playbook. What's included in that playbook? There are five steps. Uh, the first is they cherry pick evidence. The second is that they believe in conspiracy theories. The third is that they rely on fake experts and they denigrate real experts. The fourth is that they engage in illogical reasoning. And the fifth, which is really my favorite, is the idea that science has to be perfect in order to be credible. So you often find people who say, unless you can prove it to me, unless you're certain about this and you can prove it, then my belief is just as good as yours which shows that they don't understand science. What was Skiba using here? Which, which one of those five that you outlined, which technique was he using uh, here? I, I think he was using cherry picking, which is when you go out and you find the evidence that supports your point of view and you ignore the evidence that doesn't. And the reason that he was using this, the, the evidence that he was using this, is that you can go out on Lake Michigan many different times and the city of Chicago does disappear behind the horizon, but sometimes it doesn't. So why is he only showing you the pictures of the times that it doesn't? And how does he explain the times when it does appear behind the horizon? He had no explanation for that. 
Whereas the superior mirage effect explains very well why it happens sometimes and it does in others, because it depends on the temperature of the water. So how did this conversation go with him, Lee, and how did it wrap up? And the big question on everyone's mind is, did you change his mind? There was no chance I was going to change his mind. Uh, he walked away. He, he didn't treat me badly. He didn't shout or anything. He simply stopped talking to me and uh, headed somewhere else. So, so why engage in this? Why engage in this if you weren't going to change his mind or change the mind of yeah. any of the participants at this conference? Because it's possible. It's actually possible to change someone's mind. And this was an experiment for me. I didn't know going in uh, that I wouldn't be able to change someone's mind. It turns out to be very difficult to do that uh, with a hardcore denier. But I did get him to listen to me, and I listened to him. More importantly, we had a crowd, and I might have planted a seed of doubt in the crowd. So is that the most we can hope for when we talk to a science denier, whether it's someone who denying the, the science of climate change or of vaccine safety, that just to plant a seed of doubt, not to try to change minds? But that's how you change minds. You, you cannot change someone's mind against their will. And it's very difficult to change it on the spot, uh, especially with a hardcore denier who's dug in. You have to first gain their trust. You have to, uh, in, the reason you, you, you engage with them patiently, calmly, respectfully, and then over time as they grow to trust you and the, maybe the doubts begin to flourish in their mind, then maybe they'll change their mind. But it's a, it's a process. It's not a one-off. Let's talk about the consequences of science denial. In preparation for this conversation with you today, Lee, I looked up the flat earther, Rob Skiba, and I was startled to learn, I don't know if you know this, that he died in October 2021 of covid I, I lear just learned that today, and um, that, that makes me very sad. I learned that his science denial was not confined to challenging around Earth. He was also pushing vaccine skepticism, and his YouTube following at the time of his death was about a quarter of a million followers. This is an example where the consequences of the denialism are stark. It is, of course, difficult to hear that he died of another science denial belief like anti-vax. But in some ways, it doesn't surprise me because one of the roots of science denial is lack of trust in scientists. Um, he did not trust scientists to tell him the truth about the shape of the earth. So as a conspiracy theorist, it's not completely shocking to me that he didn't trust scientists to tell him the truth about COVID. And it is a very unfortunate thing that that occurred. Well, finally, Lee, let's look at ways in which minds set against the science evidence can change. And I want to illustrate with the example of a congressman, Congressman Jim Bridenstine. Tell us a story of Jim Bridenstine. What happened? Every science denier who is convinced to give up their beliefs, it happens in exactly the same way, including Jim Bridenstine. Jim Bridenstine was a Rock Rib Republican, conservative member of Congress. He gave a speech that climate change was a hoax, saying all the things that one would say in a speech like that. Mr. Speaker, global temperatures stopped rising 10 years ago. Global temperature changes when they exist correlate with sun output and ocean cycles. 
During the medieval warm period, of course, Donald Trump appointed him to be head of NASA because what else would you do with a virulent climate denier but make him head of NASA? Within a few months of being head of NASA, Jim Bridenstine gave up his belief that climate change was a hoax, gave another speech in which he said that climate change was real and that we were the cause of it. I don't deny the consensus that the climate is changing. In fact, I fully believe and know that the climate is changing. I also know that we human beings are contributing to it in a major way. I think what happened is this. As head of NASA, he began talking to his colleagues. One thing about the disinformation that makes science deniers believe what they believe is that it makes them distrust scientists. But all of a sudden he met these scientists and he knew them on a first name basis. He was hanging out with them in the halls. He was having lunch with them. He was their boss. So when they presented him with the data, it made sense and he changed his mind. Science denial is not just an information deficit, it's a trust deficit. When you can overcome a science denier's lack of trust, that's when you have your best chance to convince them. Lee McIntyre, this is not the first time we've talked to you. As always, it is a pleasure to talk to you. My pleasure. Thank you for having me back. Lee McIntyre is a research fellow at the Center for Philosophy and History at Boston University. He's the author of Post-Truth and How to Talk to a Science Denier, Conversations with Flat Earthers, Climate Deniers, and Others Who Defy Reason. Well, we do not deny the considerable talents of senior producer Gary Niederhoff and assistant producers Shannon Rose Geary and Brian Edwards, who help make Big Picture Science possible. I am the executive producer of the program, Molly Bentley. Thanks also to financial support from Rena Shulsky David and Sammy David, and to NASA. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization that, among other endeavors, promotes critical thinking. On the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Shostak, also big thanks to our listeners and our Patreon supporters. This Skeptic Check episode of Big Picture Science that looks at the consequences of the trend of people seeking their own scientific truth is called Skeptic Check. Do your own research. Skeptic Check is brought to you thanks to a generous grant from the Trimberger Family Foundation. At the Trimberger Family Foundation, we hold that skepticism is a lamp that lights the way to truth. Trimberger.org.